This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. We're wanting to save 250 preborn babies this January by offering free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. You can help by calling 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us today. Exodus chapter 14 contains part of the most remarkable account in the Old Testament, maybe in the entire Bible, apart from the resurrection. And it's where it says this, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now we know what happened next when the Egyptian army pursued the Israelites. The Lord told Moses to stretch out his hand again and the sea returned to its bed, drowning the whole Egyptian army. Now, the parting of the Red Sea was a miracle, and yet there are still some outstanding questions about where the Israelites really traveled, which sea they actually crossed, believe it or not, and where Mount Sinai was really located. All of this is tackled in an upcoming film, which will be appearing in a number of theaters February 18th. It is called Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea Miracle, and it's directed by my next guest, Timothy Mahoney. And it's great to welcome you here, Tim. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great, Janet. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, it's great to have you here. I have always loved that portion of the book of Exodus. It's one of God's most dramatic miracles in all of Scripture. And yet it's interesting to to have to talk about the evidence for it, because I think many Christians say, well, listen, this is what God did. This is what he did to deliver the Israelites out of the Egyptian army's pursuit. So why do we need evidence for it? What are some of the issues that we need to look at? Well, as you talk about that, I, I was thinking that one of the challenges we have is young people today. Yep. Uh, they're being told that there's no evidence for the Bible and, and that the, the Bible, they go off to college or university and they're just told that the Bible is uh, just mythical and they're walking away from their faith. So one of the things that I've ended up doing and spending 20 years is actually investigating and finding an amazing pattern of evidence that shows that the events of the Exodus and these events of the Old Testament actually have enormous evidence that's affirming the events of the Bible. Which is so great. Well, some of the questions about this seminal Old Testament event involve, first of all, whether it ever took place. Why is there even any question about whether or not it took place? Well, because the times that the... uh, archaeologists today have given for the time that the Exodus was supposed to happen isn't the time when the Bible gives. But yet, so what they're saying is that the Exodus happened at around the time of Ramesses. But the Bible's dating shows that it happened several hundred years earlier. So mainstream scholars have been dismissing the, the story of the Exodus because of dating and because they don't see any evidence. But if we go earlier in time, you do see the pattern of evidence for Joseph and his family arriving into Egypt, growing into a large group of people. You see the evidence of slavery for these people, and then you see evidence of them leaving in the Exodus. And that was our first film that we produced called Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. Right. So when we're talking about where the Israelites really traveled, what are some of the issues that surround that controversy? Why is that something that people are still having questions about? Well, some people have said, well, 
they, well, first of all, they said, well, why even bother even look for the route of the exodus? Because it didn't exist in the first place. Wow. By the way, I started 20 years ago looking for the route, and I was told there wasn't any evidence for the location. Once we found the location, then we realized that God called Moses at the burning bush to bring the Israelites back to that mountain and that he would make a covenant with them. So we have a departure point in, in uh, Egypt, and we have a, de- a destination point. Somewhere in between there is a sea that was crossed, and it wasn't just crossed, it was miraculously crossed. But what's happened now is that people have been diminishing in some ways the story of the Exodus, and they're, and they're challenging, you know, if this event was miraculous. Yeah, right. Now, now, what's interesting to me is something that you mentioned in the film, and I think people are going to really learn a lot when they watch your film on this whole thing. These two main schools of thoughts that you mentioned on where the sea was. We all talk about the Red Sea, and we can get into that in a moment. But you have the Egyptian approach, which puts the Red Sea crossing at kind of a swampy lake near Egypt's borders. Then you have the Hebrew approach, which puts the crossing at the Gulf of Aqaba. So why the two different views? I mean, most people probably would say, well, it's the Red Sea. The Bible says the Red Sea, but it's more complicated than that. It is. In the beginning, uh, the, the Hebrew term that was used was called Yam Suf, which is we're going to talk about in the film. And later on, it becomes translated from Hebrew to Greek, and that becomes the Red Sea. And as time went on, it became, I would call it Egyptianized, to become the Sea of Reeds. So we go from Yam Suf to Red Sea to Sea of Reeds. And the Sea of Reeds idea is that this crossing of the Exodus happened at a Martian lake right near the border of Egypt. And the question then, that uh, location in some ways is not um, matching the events of the Bible, it's, but some people say it is. So that's what this film starts to investigate. Was this through a deep and mighty sea, as it's referenced in Scripture, or was it through a shallow, reedy lake? Right. Well, if you had a swampy little lake that wasn't that deep and the Israelites crossed it, that wouldn't be that big of a miracle, right? So is it just a matter of whether it was a big miracle or a small miracle? I think that's part of it, but it also, there are clues that depending upon where you cross, what sea you cross, on the other side of that tells you where the mountain would be. Yeah. So uh, if you're crossing a lake uh, near Egypt, you have lots of options. But if you cross the Gulf of Aqaba, then it tells you that it's possible that the mountain where Moses was told to come to was potentially in the land of Midian, where Moses lived. And that might be then that the mountain could be in northwest Saudi Arabia. Well, that's interesting. So is it the case then that the Hebrew approach is correct, or is there even more to know about the location of Mount Sinai? Well, what's happening here is that there are a number of scholars and even believers that are saying that the Hebrew approach is not correct, that they believe that the Bible gives has, is connected to Egyptian words. And, the, and so they're saying that, no, the crossing happened at a lake closer to Egypt. But then when I talk to other scholars that are Hebrew scholars, they're saying, no, the Bible is not saying that. The Bible is saying it happened at this sea. Now, the difference between crossing a, a swampy area and cro- crossing a sea is, is extreme in many cases, yeah. because one of them requires... A spectacular miracle, as some would say. Exactly. Well, don't you also talk about a third option, the fact that some of these old maps put the crossing at the Gulf of Suez? Yes. And that was, in fact, the very beginning understanding. And there's some things in the film we're going to reveal that people aren't aware of. There's going to be discoveries that we're going to show. 
and we're going to show them options of the route. Which direction did they go? We're going to show how those different theories play out so that uh, as the viewer is watching this, they're going to be able to make an informed decision. And I, I believe that it's inspiring to see what is really possible, because the other part, Janet, is how many people left Egypt. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, right. The Bible, yeah. the, the, the Bible states that there were over 600,000 men. Now, if that's the case, there could be two to three million people that left Egypt. And this is another challenge, because how in the world, if the Bible is telling us that there were that many people leaving Egypt, uh, today the modern mind cannot comprehend how God could sustain that many people in the wilderness. Yeah. Although for the Christian, we we know that we have a creator God who hung the moon and the stars and all the planets in the sky and resurrected his only begotten son from the dead. So how hard would it be for him to sustain two million people in the desert? That would be nothing for an almighty God. But what we also know is that today a lot of Christians are, you know, have a hard time believing those things. And so what we're faced with is, is that, well, are we, how are we to read the Bible? So as we're looking at it, as we're seeing the scriptures, even in my own life, probably the population of how many Israelites there were was a hard one for me to comprehend. But as I read the scriptures and as they confirmed that there was large numbers, I had to change my thinking. Wow. I had to say, well, God could do this. And if he can provide and sustain that many people in the wilderness, and by the way, I've been in the wilderness many times, uh, then I have to believe that if God can do that, then what can he do for me and my family when we're in a difficult situation? Well, that is wonderful. The name of the film is Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea Miracle. And I'm talking with the director, Tim Mahoney. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back to the discussion. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctor doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. This is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Nearly one in four pregnancies in America will end in abortion. The Ministry of Preborn provides free ultrasounds for abortion-minded women nationwide. When a mother sees her baby on an ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. Here's a story of a mom who went to one of Preborn centers and met the baby she had planned to abort. They took me to the back and they introduced me to my child for the first time through an ultrasound. I was able to see this life growing inside of me, hear the heartbeat, and nothing else mattered at that point. 
I was a mother to be. Your gift of $140 will cover the cost of five ultrasounds. All donations are tax deductible. You can help save a baby's life by donating to Preborn. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Tim Mahoney. What a wonderful film he has coming out called Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea Miracle. And this is the third installment in the Patterns of Evidence series that he's been putting out. This is going to be a really good one, Tim. This is a question that actually has crossed a lot of people's minds over the years. How in the world do you have all these Israelites, millions, as the Bible talks about, out in the desert and they make their way across the Red Sea, which parts and then the Egyptian army drowns. God sustains them. God saves them from pursuit. And and yet there are all kinds of reasons that you delved into this. You even talk, I know in the movie, about your one-time crisis of faith. Because And you went back, I know, and talked to this one expert who had originally said there wasn't any evidence for Israelites in Egypt. And that really threw you for a loop. I'm curious to hear how you came out of that and, and what that did when you first he- heard that fact that later, you know, was expounded upon in the film. Well, For me, I understand how people will have something come into their life that challenges their faith. And for me, when I went to Egypt and the difficulty it took for me to get to this location, to the very location in 2002, and ask, do you have evidence for the Israelites when he said there wasn't? I didn't say anything publicly, but privately, a seed of doubt started growing into my heart. It it grew to such an extent that when I came back, this terrible thought came into my mind when I was sitting in the edit suite looking at that footage that said this, it was like the, a, a chill came in the room and this thought came into my mind. Everything that you believe about the Bible, that your family believes, that your mother has believed, is a lie. Hmm. And a horror came over me, an utter hopelessness of despair. And at that same moment, another thought came into my mind. It was as if God and the enemy were speaking. <laughs> and it said, stop editing, get up and go to, your, go to your office. And I went up to my office and go to the bookcase. It was that clear. Read that book. And I pulled a book out that someone had given me on, uh, on Egyptology and the Bible. And there, another scholar was commenting on the very location that I was looking at in the edit suite. And I opened it up, and that's when I found evidence for the whole story of the, it, Joseph and his family and the Israelites coming into Egypt. And that began in 2000. I think it was 2002, 2003, a complete change. Had that not happened, we wouldn't be talking on the phone right now. I would probably be a a person, you know, an agnostic is a person who has questions. I might have become a Christian who had a lot of big questions that, and I had a lot of doubts, but thankfully I I had something that changed in my life. And that set me on this course to make these patterns of evidence films. That's so great. Wow, that was tough, I know. Can you share anything? I don't want to give too much away about the film, but can you share anything at all about how those doubts were addressed further when you went back to that original expert? Yes, well, it was amazing because I'll share this one scene. I was in uh, Europe filming, and I I called to interview for our second film uh, about about the writing of the Bible. And that person said, well, Manfred Bitek could come to the interview. He has new evidence. And Manfred Bitek was the Egyptologist that that's put the doubts into my mind 
in 2002. Hmm. And so I was a little bit nervous about it, but we got an interview because he said he had new evidence. And can you believe that, you know, almost 20 years later, Manfred Tech now starts to tell me that we should not doubt the Bible, wow. that there is evidence, <laughs> there is evidence, and he shows me, and I'm going to show the audience recreated scenes of where the Israelites lived. And it's amazing. They had lakeshore property. God, when he blessed them, he blessed them in a beautiful area of the land of Goshen. So when Joseph and his family moved in and grew around this area, they were, um, they were around a lake, a beautiful lake that's connected to the story of the Exodus and to the land of Goshen, which was called Gesem. And so <laughs> the question would be is, why in the world would these Jewish or Semitic names, uh, like Hebrew-type names, be found in Egypt? And where were these people from? It connects itself right back to the story of the Exodus. Wow. Uh, it's it's really a great portion of the film. I don't want to ruin it for people, but they need to watch it. You know, one thing I want to go back to, you had mentioned this Hebrew phrase, Yam Suf, which is the phrase that is used to describe Red Sea, although that's not the word for red. Um, it is the Sea of Reeds is the literal translation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Tim, why it is that it was translated Red Sea from the Septuagint and you know, what you discovered about how you get from Sea of Reeds to your conclusion about the location of the, or potential location of the Red Sea mentioned in Scripture? Right. The The Hebrew word is yam and suf. And so the question is, yam means sea, but what does suf mean? Some people think that it meant reeds, uh, because it was connected to a another word that was Egyptian called tuf. And uh, so the question is, is, is it the Sea of Reeds, or is it a sea of what? Now, by the way, the Greeks had many words for reeds, but they did not, the Jewish people who translated it into Greek did not choose a word of reed. They, they could have called it the, the Sea of Reeds back then. So they had 20-plus words, I believe, that had vegetation in it. So they were trying to tell us that the sea that was crossed was a sea, and the, the Red Sea. And as the film will uncover, well, why, why did they call it the Red Sea? That's the reason why they were looking at the Gulf of Suez. But the, there's some, some things we're going to uh, show that are going to be amazing that will show why there was confusion in the beginning. And it has to do with how the maps were drawn. It has to do with what people knew about uh, in the early days and if you ever look at an old map, you know, they're not very well drawn. They're kind of misdrawn. And so I'm going to show you through other scholars uh, new insights into how this confusion began. Yeah. And if it points to the Gulf of Aqaba, which is where other scholars are saying it, the consequences and the significance of what will happen if the sea is parted there, because that water is so deep, it's, it would be miraculous. Yeah, for sure. What about the evidence of the actual sea parting, the Israelites actually crossing it, the Egyptian army actually drowning? Is there any type of physical evidence that you uncovered, Tim, that confirms those events? Well, what you're bringing up is uh, this film is so big that it's actually two parts. Uh, the first part is February 18th, and it's a Fathom event. And if people are interested in seeing it, they can get tickets at PatternsOfEvidence.com patternsofevidence.com. But the second part where we're looking for evidence is going to be on May 5th. That is our second showing. So it's a, it's never been done. This is a huge investigation. It's almost four hours of, of feature 
documentary film. And that's where we're going to talk about the evidence that people are looking at and investigating. They're diving for evidence. And we're going to allow there to be both pro and con, like, well, is this real evidence or is this something else? Yeah. But that's where we're going to look at the crossing site. So there's every one of our films has a pattern that we look for. In this one, we look for the departure point, the direction, a desert that was crossed, a detour to a dead end, a deep sea, and a destination. And so we're, the first film is going to take us halfway through that investigation. The second film will complete the investigation. Very exciting. Well, going back to the numbers, because we had talked about that a few moments ago, the fact that if you were talking about 600,000 men, then you're talking about potentially two to three million people who were on this exodus. And how many people simply can't believe that the crowd could have been that huge. How do you deal with that issue in the film? Again, without giving too much away. And why does that matter? Why does the number of Israelites matter? Why do we need to delve into that? Well, Moses is writing an eyewitness account. In our second film, The Moses Controversy, I tried to establish that he had the ability to do that. And it must be important that God is telling us how many people. They take a census when they get to the mountain, and it's the exact number that, they, that it tells us that they were uh, leaving Egypt. And then there's another time when they take an offering. So somewhere here, God is telling us that he sustained if we believe the scriptures, and what the Hebrew approach is saying is that the scriptures are telling us that there were millions of people that he sustained. So that is, uh, uh, we, we, we look at other places in the Bible that are, are agreeing with this large number. The challenge we have today is that, that it's hard for people to believe that's possible, right. that, that God could actually do that. Yeah. But like you said, if he created the universe, and he's... Got the whole solar system and the sun and all that going. I, is it that hard to believe that he could sustain that many people? Right, right. Well, given how many years you've been delving into this, have you seen a difference in the progress that some of these Egyptologists or archaeologists have been making in confirming the biblical account? In other words, is the trajectory moving more in the direction of uncovering more evidence that just confirms the Red Sea parting? I think that... Uh, the Red Sea parting is one of the earliest, earlier events. As we move forward into the scriptures, there's even more and more evidence. And the plan, if the Lord allows us to do it, is to continue to go through the scriptures. But the geography is still there. So the geography hasn't changed as much. You know, uh, uh, as far as the, the potential passes where people would turn, or there's a reference to the location, which means either mouth of the gorge or mouth of the canal. These locations, for the most part, uh, if, are still there. So there's a lot of things that are still able to track down. Right. Well, and you said there's still excavating going on in places like Shiloh. More and more is being done over there. Yes. In fact, I've been to Shiloh, and uh, it's tremendous, the, the evidence that, that uh, they're uncovering. In fact, I just had a conversation yesterday, and there's more that they're going to be announcing. Well, that is so exciting. Tell people, Tim, more about how they can see the film and, and some of the places they can go to find out more information. Okay. So the film is going to be playing one night only. Uh, it's a Fathom event, and it's quite an event. Uh, and there's going to be a panel discussion, by the way, and you're on the panel discussion. Yes. <laughs> and, and Ken Ham will be on it. Kay Arthur will be on it. And uh, scholar uh, Jeremy Lyon will be on it. And they can get tickets at... Uh, 
uh, PatternsofEvidence.com, PatternsofEvidence.com, and they can look for the Red Sea Miracle, and it says get tickets. All right. Uh, and it's going to be this, uh, the film is going to, it's a big film, and at the end of it, like I said, we're going to have this panel discussion, which we're so excited that you're going to be on. Well, I'm excited about it too, Tim. PatternsofEvidence.com, the website. Tim, thanks a lot for being here. Great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. We're wanting to save 250 preborn babies this January by offering free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. You can help by calling 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back, everybody. I guess we're going to have another 2016. Oh, not exactly. I don't think we're ever going to have another 2016 exactly. Lots has happened, as we know, in the last several years. But when it comes to the left's view of the deplorables, I think it's gotten worse. I really do. I have had my fill, for example, of religion news service and all sorts of other alleged religious websites Tisk tisking over conservatives voting for Trump. They've lost their evangelical souls. Russell Moore's pal Michael Gerson and company over at the Washington Post lamenting the loss, basically the loss of Christianity because people voted for Trump over Hillary, which I think is so insane. I can't believe that people get, let them get away with it. Who would you have had us vote for again, Michael Gerson? Should we have voted for Hillary Clinton? Hillary locker up Clinton? Should we have voted for her? I, they they don't answer that question. They just want to tell you that you have lost all of your principles and you've lost your soul because you chose Trump over Clinton, if in fact you did. Do you understand? They're in the moral position to judge your relationship with a holy God through Jesus Christ because you made a choice in the ballot box. It's all politics. And we well remember how Hillary Clinton was unveiled, calling us the basket of deplorables and absolutely skewering all of these people on whom she looked down her nose because they just were homophobes and racists and bigots. And they're just the bottom of the barrel. You could wipe them off the bottom of your shoe and your shoe would be better for it. It was so disdainful. And it was good that that was released. Honestly, that audio was released because it reminded people what these elites actually think of us. If they had their way, they probably wouldn't even let us vote. They wouldn't want we, the people, to make the decisions about who would represent us in Washington, D.C., because they know better. They know more than you do. They're smarter than you. They went to better schools than you did. They have cooler friends. They have more expensive fashion budgets. Who are you? Who are you living in your little three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bathroom house somewhere in the South to tell Hillary Clinton and her cronies what is right and what is wrong, you know? It's really funny because when you look upon the election results of 2016, I don't think these people have learned anything. I think, if anything, they have ramped up their disdain for the people who made sure Hillary Clinton did not get into the White House. How 
could it happen? We need to cue another meme or another little gif of Greta Thunberg or Thunberg or however you want to pronounce it in Swedish uh, telling us, how dare you? How dare you vote for President Trump? How dare you not elect Hillary Clinton? She had it coming. She waited her turn. I know Greta never said this. I'm just saying this is the attitude of a lot of people in Washington and throughout this land. Here's an example of this. When you go over to the fake news network, CNN, this is making the rounds now. There was a clip over on CNN this past weekend, CNN Tonight, featuring Don Lemon, who's constantly embarrassing himself. But Don Lemon had on his show Rick Wilson, a Republican strategist who basically, I don't even know who ever heard of him before Trump. And then you also had Wajahat Ali, who's a CNN contributor. And everything you need to know about how the CNN, DNC, elitist, Washington, leftist crowd thinks of you, it's all just kind of here in these clips. Let's listen to cut one. Kelly has a master's degree in European studies from Cambridge University. Right. Also, he doesn't really say that she couldn't identify Ukraine on a map. He insinuates it's just a petty, it's just a petty attempt to put her down, right? Do, do, is that what this is? Of course. Of course. It, it, it's, it's a, it's, he's just trying to demean her, and it, obviously it's false. And look, he also knows deep in his heart that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane <laughs> next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an, an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience, uh, you know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump. Um, that, that wants to think that, that, that Donald Trump's a smart one and they're, oh, y'all, y'all, y'all elitists are dumb. <laughs> you, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my- Your math and your reading. Yeah, your reading, you know. Your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. All those lines on the map. <laughs> <laughs> Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. Do you hear the giggling, the schoolgirl giggling? That's Don Lemon. That's the host of the show, the anchor who is supposed to be feigning some sort of neutrality during the course of an interview and has just lost any pretense of any kind of neutrality. He's just giggling and giggling and giggling. Ah, isn't this hilarious? Rick Wilson referring to the Boomer Rube base. Isn't that hilarious? And this is all in reference to the story about Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking off the record to that NPR anchor, Mary Louise Kelly. And he had asked during the course of the interview if she could find Ukraine on a map. So that's what they were making fun of. Do you understand only leftists can find places on a map. See, you, you, if you're a Republican, you probably cannot find Ukraine on a map. That's just, just a toughie. You can't spell. You can't do geography. You certainly don't know how to vote. It's incredible. It's incredible what they think of people. And they're just not toning it down at all. You're all idiots. This guy, Rick Wilson, is ostensibly a Republican strategist. And he thinks if you voted for Donald Trump, that you're a moron. And he's not afraid to say so and make fun of you. And do you like that insult that he hurls basically in a Southern accent? So anybody who lives in the South, you're all morons. I mean, how insulting can you possibly get? So then the CNN correspondent Ali tries, tries to walk it back a little bit. Listen to cut two. Sorry, I apologize. But, 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 but you know what? But, 
It was Rick's fault. I blame Rick. But in all honesty, but all, you know what Rick. NPR should Why do? Why not? Sorry, hold on. You, wait, wait. Can yeah, I tell give you what, me a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry. <laughs> that was good. Sorry. Rick, you, that you, was a good one. I needed that. Okay, so listen. Can, Let's can get I tell back you what, to business here. Like, but can I tell you what NPR should do? NPR, <laughs> NPR should take a black sharpie, circle it all around that whole subcontinent, around Bangladesh and Ukraine, and just be like, there, there's Ukraine, right in the middle. All right, so just in honor of Donald Trump. A U with a crane on it. That is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think that this particular clip will continue to be out there through the election. I really do, because people are picking up on this and saying, this is the media. This is a Republican strategist with two people from CNN, and they just don't learn. Now, I understand from a media perspective why CNN operates the way that it does, because they have jettisoned any interest that they ever had in trying to appeal to all Americans. They understand that the left is their base. The left is basically who is watching them, except for Republicans or conservatives who watch them to, to get moments like this, like Newsbusters did. But on the other hand, it makes them look worse. And these same people, this is just so ironic to me, the same people on the left who are constantly decrying Fox News for being a right-wing network, which, by the way, it is not. And it's become less so a so-called right-wing network in the last several years. Anybody who's been watching Fox News can attest to that. You're seeing more and more people where they hire some of these people on the left and Come on. I mean, I know they're trying to be balanced in the fair and balanced thing, but it's not balanced. There's some people who have been hired there at Fox News with whom I completely disagree. I don't think they should have even been hired. They're just a, a wrong for doing that in the first place. But be that as it may, they're allowed to hire who they want. But at least give them some credit for trying to broaden the voices on the network so as to appear a little bit more neutral. But But this is just something completely different. And what I'm wondering is... If there will be more and more voters who have had enough of it, who have said, I'm tired of the media labeling me a moron, as if there are no people who are lacking intellectual prowess on the left. I can think of some people in Congress who are about as far left as you can go, who really are lacking in the intellectual prowess category. I'm not going to name any names, but she's from New York and she wears some glasses and dances a little bit. Hey, it's just it's just truth, right? There there could be some more education out there in New York. We're going to come back when we do. Oh boy, I'm going to tell you about a progressive hymn that's just come out. It's not a hymn. We'll be back. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and during the Sanctity of Human Life Month, we remember the more than 60 million babies who have died by abortion. But even more importantly, we're helping the Ministry of Preborn save babies' lives this month. Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood and the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. By equipping pregnancy centers with ultrasound machines, Preborn is able to meet abortion-minded women at their darkest times and help them choose life. You see, when a young mom considering abortion walks into a pre 
Preborn Center, she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and the opportunity to meet the beautiful life that is growing inside of her through a free ultrasound. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something God gave me for a reason. It's a fact that eight out of 10 times when an abortion-minded woman sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life. And that's why we here at Janet Meffer today need your help this month to save 250 babies. One ultrasound session costs $28. A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody said. Abortion is one of the greatest genocides in history. Please help save lives today by partnering with Preborn for the sake of babies in crisis. We want to save 250 babies during this Sanctity of Human Life Month, but we really need your help. You can sponsor one free ultrasound for only $28. A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. 100% of your gift will go directly to saving lives. Please call now 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Dial 855-402-2229 or you can click on the preborn banner at janetmefford.com. That's janetmefford.com. 855-402-BABY. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, one of the downsides of going into a new election season is they're going to ramp up all the leftist, progressive, religious crowd. They've been trying to do this for X number of years. I don't even know how long. Ever since Jim Wallace came on the scene, they've been trying to shove the leftist, progressive, religious myth down everybody's throats. And, you know, we had the whole thing of Doug Paget and his Vote Common Good tour, and everybody was reporting on that. And I remember kind of yawning at the time those stories came out and said, this is going to make absolutely zero difference in how evangelicals vote because he's a far left progressive and Christians are not far left progressives. So you can keep touting them NPR and you can keep touting them CNN, but it doesn't mean that evangelicals are going to listen to this guy. So at any rate, another guy that they love over at some of these leftist outlets is a guy by the name of Shane Claiborne, and you will know him. He's from the emergent crowd, far left. He wears kind of I don't know, knitwear. I don't really understand. I don't know if he still wears the knitwear. I never quite understood the whole thing. At any rate, he he's a pastor and he's far left and he's always touting the, you know, Matthew 25 stuff and you know, welcome the stranger and feed the poor and you all stink. So Shane Claiborne writes this article over at Red Letter Christians and Religion News Service picked it up as well about this song that is ostensibly going viral. It's going viral, don't you know? Yeah. (laughs) He complains at this Red Letter Christians article that he wrote that he doesn't really like Christian music because it doesn't speak to him. And then he says, it moved me to tears when I heard Christian worship leader Daniel Dietrich write a hymn to the 81%. The song is quickly going viral with lines like, well, I'm going to save that because you got to hear it for yourself. He calls it the perfect cocktail of prophetic fire and Christ-like grace. It is a love song to the church and a call to repentance. Well, I'm going to play just a little bit of the hymn to the 81%. Now, forgive me, I have been around long enough to think that the dictionary definition of hymn, which is a song of praise to God, is actually what a hymn is, but nah, not really. I mean, a hymn can pretty much be whatever the left says it is. And I think they really kind of 
figured it out here with this fantastic viral hymn to the 81%. Listen to this excerpt. All this started putting kids in cages, ripping mothers from the babies. I look to you to speak on their behalf. Oh, but all I heard was silence. Or worse, you justified it. Singing glory, hallelujah, raise the flag. Heartwarming. I don't see what makes that a hymn, but let me read these lyrics to you. I don't want to play the whole thing because it's basically three chords, honestly. And you know what's hilarious? I I designated this song as three chords and just kind of a progressive rant, which is what it is. And then he admits in this interview that he did with Shane Shane Claiborne that he can play three chords. (laughs) Hey, that was pretty good. Anyway, this is the list here of the lyrics. I grew up in your churches, Sunday morning, evening service, knelt in tears at the foot of the rugged cross. You taught me every life is sacred. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked. I learned from you the highest law is love. I believed you when you said that I should trust the words in red to guide my steps through a wicked world. I assumed you'd do the same. So imagine my dismay when I watched you lead the sheep to the wolves. You said to love the lost, so I'm loving you now. You said to speak the truth, so I'm calling you out. Why don't you live the words that you put in my mouth? May love overcome and justice roll down. (laughs) Yeah, I'm calling you out. Let's talk about love. Oh, and then the portion that you heard, if you couldn't understand those lyrics, here they are. They started putting kids in cages, ripping mothers from their babies. And I looked to you to speak on their behalf, but all I heard was silence or worse, you justify it singing glory. Hallelujah. Raise the flag. I've never once heard a conservative Christian say, glory, hallelujah, raise the flag. But be that as it may, it goes on. Your fear had turned to hatred, but you baptized it with language torn from the pages of the good book. You weaponized religion and you wonder why I'm leaving to find Jesus on the wrong side of your walls. Come home, come home. You're better than this. You taught me better than this. Does that make you want to praise God? So basically, this worship leader is just slamming people who voted for Trump. (laughs) I'm laughing because you're not Larry Norman. Do you remember Larry? I know I'm really going back in time here, but Larry Norman, who is one of the pioneers of contemporary Christian music, wrote a song years ago. It's still around and you hear it from time to time on the radio. The Great American Novel. And the whole thing was calling out the Vietnam War. And then he says, don't ask me for the answers. I've only got one that a man leaves his darkness when he follows the sun. And it was kind of a three chord song also and I thought of Larry Norman right away when I read this and I said unfortunately you're you're not Larry Norman at any rate I got to read a little bit of this interview because I think this is pretty funny it's pretty funny he describes his church South Bend City Church, a Jesus-centered community for believers and doubters and everyone in between. It's a place where spiritual exiles have found a home, a place where you don't have to check your brain at the door. Oh, there it is again. See, if you're stupid, you won't come to my church. You can go to that evangelical church down the road. Uh, It's been so beautiful, he says, to see people who have been excluded from or wounded by the church feel safe and seen and loved. We also think that while the message of Jesus often has political ramifications, it's not partisan. Oh, no, 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 no. Why would we think you slamming Trump voters because we ostensibly love having kids put in cages at the border? That's not political and that's certainly not partisan. Oh, no, 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 that's not partisan. He says, we want to be a community that transcends political parties. (laughs) Oh, it's killing me. No, they want to transcend political parties. 
Do, do, you, do you notice that the people who are always yelling and screaming about Trump always claim to be above politics? It's kind of the ERLC's way. Anyway, Shane Claiborne asks this guy, Daniel Dietrich, about his hymn for the 81%. He says, how did it come to be? What do you hope people hear and think as they pray it and sing it? Here's what Daniel says. The seed for this song has been rumbling around in the back of my mind for a few years now. In 2016, 81% of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump after, among other things, hearing an audio recording of him bragging about sexually assaulting women. In the years since, even after enacting deliberately cruel policies to rip families apart and put children in cages at the southern border. Evangelical support is as fervent as ever. You want us to vote for the socialist, Daniel? Should we vote for Bernie Sanders? Vote for Elizabeth Warren, who says that she's going to put non-binary people in the White House as a matter of civil rights? Or Joe Biden, who says the transgender issue is the civil rights issue of our time? People who are pro-abortion, people who are in favor of the radical abortion laws in New York and Illinois and think infanticide is perfectly fine, like Ralph Northam, think we should do that? Because they're the reasonable ones. They're the smart ones. They can find the Ukraine on a map, folks. So that's it. So anyway, he describes uh, that he was raised in the evangelical world and was taught to take the words of Jesus seriously. Well, you you can read between the lines. If you're not a leftist progressive, you're not taking Jesus seriously. How self-righteous is that? By the way, let's go back to something that I think is absolutely relevant to this story. This is a story in the Washington Examiner that appeared on June 26th of last year. Former President Obama's top immigration chief in charge of removing illegal immigrants said that the cages Democrats have accused President Trump of housing children in were the brainchild of the Obama administration. You remember this? This was Thomas Homan. I played some of this at the time that it happened. He said, I've been to that facility where they talk about cages. That facility was built under President Obama, under Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. I was there because I was there when it was built. So maybe Daniel can rework his song a little bit and chastise Obama, but I don't really think that's probably going to happen. So he goes on and on about his song. And yeah, I did this and I did that. And at the end, he really reveals what's going on here. He's asked, do you think you will write more songs like this that speak about immigrant children and challenging Trump evangelicalism? What's that? He said, I wish I didn't have to write this one. Ha ha. I suspect it will continue to be necessary, though. I do love writing songs that help people to not feel alone in their pain, songs that make people think a bit. Like I mentioned in the song, religion has been weaponized and the list of casualties is long. There's so much work to do to combat white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, all the ways in which people are treated as less than the children of God that they are. First of all, not everybody is a child of God. You're only a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, at which point you were adopted into the family of God. We're all created in the image of God, which reminds me, if you're a leftist progressive, how do you justify voting for the party of genocide? Why don't you, maybe somebody should write a song about that. Maybe somebody should write a song about that and remind those on the left who think that they're so morally superior that they're condoning murder. That's just the way it is. Child slaughter is murder. How much more clear does it get? 61, 62 million babies slaughtered in the name of the sexual revolution and convenience. And they're going to lecture people on the right for voting the best way they can for imperfect candidates whom they've never said are perfect. It's, It's a little obnoxious. I'll just say that. And by the way, not a hymn. I prefer other sorts of hymns. 
How about Holy, Holy, Holy? I love that one. Great is thy faithfulness. How great thou art. That's my kind of hymn. Gotta go. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. 